This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. The United States is the richest country on earth, but it has more poverty than any other advanced democracy. Why is that the case? The sociologist Matthew Desmond offers a new answer in his book, Poverty by America. He says poverty exists because some of us wish and will it to. I speak with Matthew Desmond about his book on this episode of the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Matthew Desmond. Thanks for being here at the Commonweal Podcast. Thanks for having me. So I want to jump right in. And you begin your book with a chapter titled, The Kind of Problem Poverty Is. And you write that even using terms like, quote unquote, the poverty line obscures the real malignancy of the reality. Poverty isn't a line, you write, but a tight knot of social maladies. Can you talk about those maladies and how they're so intertwined? Sure. If you look at poverty just as a poverty line, just as an income level, you are struck with the fact that we have a lot of poverty in the United States, right? 38 million of us live below the official poverty line. That's like the population of Australia. Huge number of Americans really economically strapped. But that's just the surface. And I think that if you spend a lot of time with folks enduring poverty, if you yourself have experienced it, you know that poverty is like Toothra is not able to afford going to a doctor, is telling your kids that they have to eat wish sandwiches for dinner. It's facing eviction and depression, being exposed to unhealthy and unsafe housing and, and violence often. So poverty isn't a line. You're right. It's this really tight knot of social humiliations and maladies. And it means that millions of us are denied safety and security in the richest country in the history of the world. Mm. You go on to note that a half century after Lyndon Johnson declared a war on poverty, we've made little to no progress in reducing it. Fifty years of nothing, you say, explaining that you, like many people, have long put most of the blame on the market-driven economic and fiscal policies of politicians like Ronald Reagan. But then you discovered that the reality is more complex, that anti-poverty spending actually has increased over time and has continued to grow, even right up through the Trump administration. So why hasn't all this spending helped us make more progress? So this is a paradox, and I think we have to embrace this paradox if we are going to get serious about ending poverty in America. The paradox is this. Anti-poverty spending has increased significantly over the last 50 years. So between Ronald Reagan's first term and Donald Trump's first term, spending on the 13th biggest means-tested programs, these are things like food stamps, housing assistance, that's increased about 237% adjusting for inflation per person spending. Big increase, really Mm -hmm. serious increase. Mm Now, over that time, according to a lot of different poverty measures, poverty has been pretty persistent, including even measures that take into account government spending and transfers. So if you look at something called the supplemental poverty measure, for example, 50 years ago, it was about 15 percent. 40 years later, it was about 15 percent. It dipped lower right up to COVID and then plunged mm. in COVID because of this kind of historic, colossal intervention that the government made. And then we're creeping back up. Mm. But I think an accurate look at those measures would 
raises a real puzzle because we know that those government programs work. They're life-saving. There's just a ton of evidence that things like the earned income tax credit for low-income workers mm -hmm. or housing assistance, man, these pull millions of families above the poverty line, but poverty still persists. So why? And in a nutshell, it's because the fundamentals of American society, especially in the job market and the housing market, are breaking down for a lot of Americans today. So look at just after the war on poverty, right? Lyndon Johnson launches the war on poverty in 1964. 10 years later, the poverty line is cut in half, right? Real progress. Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons there was so much progress was because that was a time when unions had a lot of power, right? And one in three workers had a union card. Wages were increasing every year. But today, unions don't have a lot of power and wages are stagnant. And for example, a man without a high school or without a college degree, his wages are less today than they were mm -hmm. 50 years ago. So that means we have to spend more to stay in the same place. Mm -hmm. And I think it has big implications for how we address this problem because it means we don't just need to spend more or make deeper investments. We do. But we also need different policies. We need policies that cut poverty at the root. So what would some of those policies be, do you think? We need to do three things. So first, we do need to deepen our investment in anti-poverty spending, and we need to fund those investments with fair tax implementation. Uh, recent studies showed that if the top 1% of us just pay the taxes they owed, not paid more taxes or got taxed at a higher rate, just yeah. stopped evading taxes so successfully, that we as a nation could raise an additional $175 billion a year. That's almost enough mm -hmm. to pull everyone above the official poverty line. We can do this. But we also need to change our game, especially when it comes to exploitation. We need to address exploitation in the labor market, which means we need to give workers power. We need to address it in the housing market, which means we need to expand housing opportunity for families below the poverty line. And we need to end the unrelenting exploitation of poor families in the banking industry, financial industry. And so there's a lot of policies we can do to do that. We need mm -hmm. to make organizing easier. It shouldn't be so hard. Mm -hmm. We need to think about different kinds of ways of getting folks access to safe, affordable housing, including expanding homeownership opportunities for working class and low-income families. And man, we need to end all these overdraft fees and payday loan fees mm -hmm. that are piled on the backs of the poor and cost them $61 million every single day mm -hmm. just to access a bit of money and a bit of credit. Mm -hmm. And then the third move we need to make is we have to end our embrace of segregation. We need to strive to being a, a neighborhood of open, inclusive communities, not communities that that bar off opportunity and hoard opportunity behind walls. And these walls today are made out of laws, like zoning laws. Mm -hmm. And so we need to tear down those walls and replace these exclusionary zoning laws that say it's illegal to build any kind of affordable housing with inclusionary ones that say we all need to do our part. A lot of your book, and I think you do a great job at this, and it's, it, it serves a very valuable purpose, is identifying and uh, clearing up common misperceptions. And one of those, and I want to uh, touch on it a bit, is how people view immigration. Those opposed to immigration say that new arrivals from other countries depress wages for everyone else while taking jobs from native-born workers and plunging them into poverty. But again, the reality is different. Uh, could you explain? Sure. On the one hand, 
It's understandable that some folks point to immigration when it comes to understanding the economic woes of the country. Their rates of immigration have gone up a lot over the last 60 years. And so we might think, okay, has poverty gone up a lot over that time? And the answer is no. Poverty has basically stayed the same. Three states, California, Texas, and Florida, hold about half of all our immigrant population today. In two of those states, Texas and Florida, poverty has actually gone down. Mm-hmm. Over the last several decades in California, it's basically stayed the same. So even in the states that have experienced the biggest surge of immigrant flows have not experienced the biggest surge in poverty. So then we might ask, okay, but is it the case that there's a competition for jobs and immigrants are, are to be blamed for wage stagnation? And wage stagnation is real. That's a real thing. Mm-hmm. But immigrants are not to blame for that. Immigrants seem to be competing mostly with other immigrants in, in the economy. So if you're a if you're an older immigrant or someone that's been here for a while, who you need to really worry about it is a newcomer immigrant. And if you're a native-born worker, you're competing against other forces and usually not against immigrant pressures. Mm-hmm. And then there's this third concern that uh, immigrants might place undue uh, weight on the welfare state. And but the best research we have shows that uh, the average immigrant family actually pays more in federal taxes than they receive in federal benefits. And if we step back and look at the full shape of the welfare state and how it really benefits folks that have plenty already, it's kind of laughable Mm. to point to immigrants as something that's being an anchor weight on a welfare state. Some 40 pages or so into your book, you get into uh, the main examination, the real topic of your book, with a line that I just want to share. Poverty exists because some wish and will it to, which I think is a very uh, provocative framing of it. Um, and you lay out evidence, begin beginning with a chapter called How We Undercut Workers. And I know you identified some of those ways we undercut workers a moment ago. But I wonder if you could maybe talk a little more about that and how that affects poverty. Absolutely. And so I think that it's really hard to underestimate the power that unions had in providing an economy that shared its bounty. Now, Mm -hmm. unions weren't perfect, right? They made a lot of mistakes. They were racist often. They barred Black and Latino workers from their ranks. And in that way, it shot themselves in the foot and prevented the country from experiencing this big, powerful, multiracial labor movement that we could have had. But our most equitable time in modern history was in the 1970s, and that was the time where unions had the most power. Mm-hmm. Unions lost their traditional organizing base as the economy shifted away from industrialization. They shot themselves in the foot with self-defeating racism, but also they were politically just attacked, ruthlessly attacked by corporations and politicians aligned with those corporations. And so we've moved from a place where about a third of the country was unionized in the 70s, which mm-hmm. wasn't just good for those union-carrying workers, but it was also good for folks that were in the same market and didn't want and were competing um, mm-hmm. with other firms that were unionized. If I mm-hmm. was a employer and my shop wasn't unionized, I knew I'd still have to keep wages high or else my workers would just leave for mm-hmm. for a shop that was. Mm-hmm. So we moved to a place where about a third of the, the economy was unionized to a place where only about uh, one in 10 workers today uh, have a union card. And most of those are public sector folks. They're, they're cops, they're firefighters, they're nurses, teachers. And so that really is a driving force for why wages have been really stagnant, especially for folks without a college degree, and why a lot of work has turned more insecure and more gig-like uh, over the years. So mm. it's 
for me, reading the evidence, this is not about education, actually. It's not about a skills mismatch. This is about power and the fact that workers have lost it. Mm-hmm. Would you say that there was a pivotal moment when unions were thought of as necessary and vital to the American economy and then anathema or enemies of, of the economy? I think it's common for some of us to think about, say, Ronald Reagan's dismantling of the air traffic controllers union in the early 80s. Was there a single moment that led to this, or was it more, in your opinion, kind of a, an evolution, for lack of a better word? Yeah, I think what Reagan did to the air traffic controllers really mattered. Mm. And I think that's part of the historical record. When mm. Reagan mm. fired, what was it, 11, 13,000? 11,000, I think, yeah. Something yeah, like that. air mm. traffic controllers, mm. and received very little public blowback for doing mm. so. Mm-hmm. I think corporations got a signal. And you see this in the historical record. You see folks saying, well, gosh, if the president could do it, I can do it too. Mm. And that's where we do see corporations shortchanging their workers, breaking strikes, moving their firms, ignoring labor laws. Mm -hmm. And I do think that was, if not the pivotal moment, at least a pivotal moment Mm. in terms of the loss of labor power in America today. Do you see any way that organized labor or unions can be built back up at this moment? So one idea that I really is an idea that you see in Europe a lot called secretarial bargaining. Mm -hmm. Now, this sounds really boring, but it's not. It's cool. It's a way to basically make collective bargaining easier. And so right now you have to like organize one Amazon warehouse or one Starbucks location at a time. And that's just inefficient. And there's no way we can organize the American workforce like that. So... Secretary of Bargaining says, what if this happened? What if everyone in a certain sector took a vote? All the nurses, all the warehouse workers. And if half of them voted yes, that would trigger a process. And the Secretary of Labor would gather a panel made up of workers, made up of the bosses, and they would negotiate for terms that cover the entire industry. And so you've seen this play out in Europe to really successful effect. And it's one way we could organize big, giant sectors of the economy at once. So we didn't have to depend on the success of this local place or this local place or get thwarted by certain states that have worker regulations that are are more or less pro-union. A few moments ago, you talked about the burden that we actually put on poor people, forcing them to pay more for things. And we talked about housing already, but you lay out a host of other ways. They seem smaller, but they're obvious and they're insistent the way poor people have to pay more. And you alluded to payday lending before. But what are some of the other ways that the poor are are forced to pay more? One way is just the normal banking system. We often think of payday loan companies and check cashing stores as really the predatory mm-hmm. parts of the financial system. And there's predation there, to be sure. But our normal banks, the banks that you and I and probably everyone listening to this uses, are uh, the bigger culprit. So about every year, $11 billion in overdraft fees are charged to bank customers. Most of those fees, over 80% of those fees, are charged to just 9% mm-hmm. of bank customers. So who are those 9%? They're poor folks made to pay for their poverty. And it's not uncommon to withdraw your account by 20 bucks, 30 bucks, and end up paying 100, 150 bucks forward in an overdraft fees. Who does that benefit? And I think this is the move that one of the one of the moves that I try to make in the book is to try to write myself in these stories a bit. Mm-hmm. I bank at a conventional bank mm-hmm. and I get free checking. Turns right. out that's not free. Right. That's subsidized by all those overdraft fees piled in the backs of the poor. And so this is one kind of just innocuous way 
that turns out to be not innocuous at all, right? Just trying to get by in these normal systems can be incredibly morally compromising in America today. We'll have more of my conversation with Matthew Desmond in a minute. I'm Claudia Avila-Cosnahan, Director of Mission and Partnerships at Commonweal. One thing I love about Commonweal is our spirit of curiosity. It shapes everything we do, from religion to politics to culture and the arts. Consider becoming a Commonweal associate today. Just visit commonwealmagazine.org forward slash donate. Your gift helps support everything we do, including this podcast. Now let's get back to the conversation. So is a similar phenomenon something that some municipalities do when they seize private property, like a, a car maybe that whose owner has let his or her registration lapse? Or say a, a driver gets a speeding ticket and can't make a court date and there's fees piled on top of that. Is that yeah. an example of this too? Or does that factor into some of the things you have seen or studied? Absolutely. This isn't just a private market phenomenon. So you mm-hmm. can think of cities trying to balance its police budget by ticketing and reticketing poor, predominantly black families mm-hmm. for small violations. Or you could think of some states that charge inmates for the time in prison. So when they get out of prison, they have this huge bill that they have to work off, even pay for their own prosecution. And so I think that this is one way that the financial exploitation of the poor by government agencies, but also by corporations, has come to be seen by us as like normal Mm. and just how it is in America instead of very strange and even Mm. violent. Mm. There's another commonly held belief that you target, a belief held by opponents of social spending, that the poor become, quote unquote, welfare dependent. And you reference Paul Ryan, the former GOP congressman, Paul Ryan's famous line that the social safety net is a hammock that lulls able-bodied people into lives of dependency. But in fact, you write, and I think this is a very good line, the American people, I'm sorry, the American poor are terrible at being welfare dependent. I wish they were better at it. Uh, can you explain what draws you to to this belief? Just the data. If you look into the data, you just see very little evidence of welfare dependency. Here's one quick data point. In COVID, we heard about this all the time, right? We heard about our lawmakers saying, we're paying people to stay home, and when do people get so lazy? So there happened to be a natural experiment in the middle of COVID, where about half the states lifted extra aid, uh, COVID aid. So this was like extended unemployment benefits, for example, and about half the states kept those benefits. So if there were, the welfare dependency idea was true, we should have seen job numbers really start surging in the states that got rid of the benefits, but we didn't. They were basically a tie between the two states. It's not true that folks were being paid to stay home. That just mm-hmm. didn't bear out. And it it speaks to something deeper in the American psyche that many of us went there Mm. Instead of saying people aren't going to work because mm-hmm. they don't want to die or because their kids can't go to school or because they don't have childcare, but we went to this other place, this old trope of welfare dependency, when there wasn't data that we should have. And if you look at the data, the bigger problem, right, is welfare avoidance. The fact that there's all this money, like real money, left on the table every year uh, by folks who qualify for certain benefits but don't take them. So as I calculated in my book, that if you count up all the money left on the table by folks who qualify for food stamps and don't take it, they're earning income tax credit, this benefit for working uh, families below a certain income level. 
they don't take it. Folks that don't take government health insurance and supplemental security income, unemployment insurance. If you adjust those programs up, you're over $140 billion in unused aid every year. Mm-hmm. Isn't Section 8 housing another one of those two that people don't take enough advantage of? So Section 8 housing, mm-hmm. unlike food stamps, isn't an entitlement. Mm-hmm. So there's not enough aid to go around. So only about one in four families that qualify for any kind of housing assistance receive it. Mm-hmm. That includes uh, a voucher like a Section 8 housing voucher that reduces your mm-hmm. rent. And the, the vast majority, the unlucky majority, receive nothing mm-hmm. uh, from the government. And that's why most poor families today spend at least half of their income mm-hmm. on housing costs. Wages have stagnated, rents have shut up, and the government has not filled the gap. It's also true that Section 8 housing success rates depend a lot on landlords, right? And so I could get a voucher and I could say, yeah, I want to use this voucher. But if I can't get a landlord to work with me, then, then that's a problem. Mm. And so that affects those kind of what policy walks call take-up rates, the success of these programs as well. But in a lot of other these programs, like food stamps, that if you qualify for them, you could get them. And that doesn't depend on anyone working with you. A lot of folks are still saying no. Half of all elderly Americans, for example, that qualify for food stamps don't receive them. Mm. I want to uh, ask you about a, a, a kind of a concept or image you raise in your book, and that's the one of private opulence versus public squalor. And this is something I find a pernicious and insidious phenomenon. And it seems to me that it's been long in the making, but it's become so much more apparent in recent years. Can you talk about what you mean by private opulence and public squalor? It's an old phrase, definitely not my phrase, and it mm-hmm. actually goes back to some Roman historians, but I encountered it in John Kenneth Galbraith's famous book, The Affluent Society. And Galbraith made this point where if you have a country where a lot of rich people live alongside a lot of poor people, this momentum, this process starts. And the process is private opulence and, and public poverty, which means as the rich get richer, they withdraw from public spaces. They don't need to use the public park. They got the country club. They don't need to swim in the public pool. They can dig their own pool. And as that accelerates through things like tax breaks and other policies, the what is shared and what is public becomes crummy and shabby and becomes exclusively used just by, by poor folks that have to use these services that no one likes because no one likes using shabby things. Mm-hmm. And that drags everyone down. Right, Not just folks that are under the heel of economic desperation in America, but also folks that are quite secure in their money mm-hmm. because you can't really live a full free life if the public sphere is disinvested from. So it's the difference between riding a train in Switzerland or other parts in Europe and riding a bus in some parts of America. You can tell who invests in public goods and who uses those public goods. And so I think this is a, an incredibly pernicious part of American society. I like that word you used. And it's something that should give us all pause, including those of us that do have enough money to afford those country clubs or private pools, because it's just another example how poverty in our midst drags everyone down. I want to talk about another uh, concept you raise, another dynamic at play that's maybe not entirely unrelated. And uh, it's uh, what you term the scarcity diversion. Can you talk a little bit about this. And what can we do about these dynamics and these realities to achieve what you call the personal and political project of abolishing poverty? I'm so grateful for your close read of the book. You hear the scarcity diversion all the time. 
And you hear it when someone says, well, in a world of scarce resources, what do you want to do? Or mm. you hear it especially when our elected leaders say, well, we just can't afford to cut child poverty. We can't afford to give everyone in this country access to a dentist. And that's just a lie. Mm -hmm. That's just a lie. We could afford it. We could afford it if the richest among us took less from the government. We could afford it if the country did a lot more to invest in educational opportunity than it did to guard fortunes. And so the scarcity diversion strikes us as something serious people say. I think if you look at the data and look at what this country of dollars could do, we have to reject that. And we have to come up with a language, like a reflex, that, that is able to say, look, you're lying. You're lying. And we could afford to do more. We just choose not to. And the opposite of the scarcity diversion is, is abundance. This kind of recognition that the country has a lot. There's a lot to go around. And wouldn't we be a safer, healthier, freer, more vibrant country if we embrace that, that mindset? And that's a policy decision, and that's a personal decision. And you brought this up at the end of your question about what the end is here. And for me, the end is the abolition of poverty. I think our poverty rate should be zero. That doesn't mean we're all equal. That doesn't mean that everything's perfect, but it means that no one in this land of riches should fall below a certain level of income and a certain level of, of happiness and, and well-being. So it's been um, some months since your book first appeared, and now we're gearing up for national elections in 2024. And I've heard scant talk among politicians and candidates about poverty as an issue. They talk about inflation. They talk about taxes, of course. They talk about interest rates. What's your assessment at this point of how our politicians are taking up the issue of poverty? And are there other ways besides appealing to elected government officials? Uh, I guess this gets into the personal part of the project about how you say uh, poverty should be abolished. The personal part of the, the project of Americans trying to address and abolish, abolish poverty. I feel like there's two questions. Mm -hmm. One is about how are we doing politically on this issue? And I think the answer is not great. And I think that poor Americans deserve more than either party has delivered for them over the last 50 years. One party, the Republican Party, seems to have nothing to say to the poor. And if I were a Republican voter, I would like to know what your story is to decrease poverty in, in America. And on the ground level among voters, a lot of Americans want an answer to that question, Republicans and Democrats. In the halls of Congress, it's a little different. Democrats do push for and enact and champion policies to reduce poverty much more than Republicans. This is true. But they often shy away from the word poverty. They prefer talking about the, the middle class or economic opportunity. And I understand the politics behind that, but I don't think you can fix problems that you don't name. And it's been a long time since someone asked a question like, how do we reduce child poverty in a presidential debate? I would love to see that question mm. asked this time around. On the ground level, I think that we need to build out an anti-poverty movement, which means many more of us need to start taking personal responsibility for all this poverty in our midst to try to recognize how we're connected to the problem and how we're connected to the solution. And for me, that means embracing this idea of becoming a poverty abolitionist, becoming someone that shops and invests 
in solidarity with the poor, becoming someone that talks about taxes differently, that does not defend tax breaks that accrue to the top 20%, but questions that, writes mm-hmm. my congressperson rejecting that. It means being an integrationist and turning away from segregation and showing up to my zoning board meeting at eight o'clock on a Thursday night and saying, no, like, we should build this thing here. Mm. Let's not deny these kids opportunities our kids get living here. And so the way I talk about this, it's a very, it's a very personal and political project. So for example, segregation is a result of historical legacies. It's a result of legal challenges and rules, but it's a result also the result of people fighting to keep the walls up. The segregation has put in the work. And if you've ever been to like one of those zoning board meetings, you can see them putting in the work in a really loud way. Mm -hmm. So those of us that are striving for something different need to put in the work too. So this isn't just about them, whoever them is. It's not just about Congress or about the other party or about that one uncle that you just can't convince or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's about me and us and how I can start divesting from, from poverty in my daily life. So for listeners or for the ordinary person, the average American person, what can he or she do to join this fight in, uh, for the abolition of poverty? Here's five things they can do. First, they can flex their influence wherever they are. We've all got a bit of influence. You might sit on a school board. You might be an elder at your church. I teach at a university, for example. So I should be like asking, how much are my landscapers getting paid? Are we taking care of our adjunct faculty? Are we supporting our first-generation college mm-hmm. students? I can flex my influence where we are. Second, we can vote with our wallets. We can shop and support companies that are doing right by their workers, and we can withdraw support for those union-besting, exploitative companies. And it's not always easy to know what companies are doing right, so you can consult organizations mm-hmm. like B Corps that, that give high grades, high marks to companies that are environmentally and economically friendly. You can support organizations like Union Plus that tell you, okay, you want a beer? This beer is made by union workers. This beer is not. You want some candy? Eat this, not this. Mm -hmm. And so I think doing our homework and and voting with our forks matters. Consumer activism has moved the dial in America before, and there's no reason it can't now. And that includes in our stock portfolios, too, in our investment decisions. We used to talk about sin stocks in America. Remember Mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. I'm going to get out of dirty stocks. I'm going to get out of oil. I don't want my money supporting weapons. But what about your money supporting union busting? What about your money supporting poverty wages? And so let's invest a little differently. Third, let's talk about our taxes differently. Everyone come tax time basically complains about taxes. Let's challenge that. Let's start being like, what's crazy? I get a mortgage interest deduction for my home. And we have an eviction crisis. We have over a, a million public school kids that are homeless. I'm getting government money because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a homeowner. I don't need this. So I'm, I'm going to write my congressperson. I'm going to tell her to take this away, and I'm going to donate my deduction to my local eviction defense fund. These kind of like over-the-fence water cooler conversations, that helps change the common sense. Number four, let's get our butts down to those zoning board meetings. Let's stand up. Let's raise a voice and ask and fight for broad, inclusive communities. That really matters to have our voices in the room. The segregationists are working really hard to uphold those walls. If we want those walls to come down, we need to put in the work. And finally, the last thing we can do is join an anti-poverty organization. There's a lot of them working around the country or at the federal level. And if you're interested in getting plugged in, we launched a website along with this book. It's called IndoPovertyUSA.org. It's just IndoPoverty. USA.org. And it does two things. It connects families to services in their community that they need and deserve. 
And it connects you, me, and everyone to folks putting in the work, fighting poverty, and striving for a better, safer, freer America on the ground level. So that's really the ticket. If we want this country to get serious about ending poverty, the anti-poverty movement has to grow. And for it to grow, that tent's got to get a lot bigger. We need to get involved. Matthew Desmond's book is Poverty by America. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much for being with us at the Commonweal Podcast. No, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Matthew Desmond is the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Evicted. His most recent book is Poverty by America. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.